Throughout um, the story of David, as we've been working our way through not just 1 Samuel, but 2 Samuel, um, there's been these references to David's mighty men. And I think I told you a couple weeks ago we were going to be looking at that, and I was kind of excited to get to this passage. In most of the instances, the phrase actually refers to this elite military force made up of about 30 men at any given time. Now, there's more than that. There's about 37 men or so that are referred to as David's mighty men because they didn't all serve at the same time. But it was, a, it was basically a, a group um, referred to as the 30 on multiple occasions. And they, so that term, David's mighty men and the 30, are kind of interchangeable. In First Chronicles chapter one, or I'm sorry, chapter eleven, verse ten, we actually find the primary purpose of this group of mighty men. First Chronicles chapter eleven, verse ten says, "Now these are the heads of the mighty men who David, or I probably think it's the names of the mighty men who David had, who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all of Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel." These men were fierce warriors. They were the best of the best. They actually were David's most loyal servants. Probably the best way to describe them would be they were David's special forces. I had quite a few friends of mine that served in the military. Some of them in the special or in the uh, in the um, special services or the special forces. Think about the U.S. Army. You have the Green Berets. They're the best of the best. When it comes to the Navy, you have the SEALs. When it comes to the Marines, you have the Rangers. I don't know what the Air Force has. I was going to say maybe they're flyboys or something. That doesn't sound right. But each of the special, each of the military arms have their special forces where they have the best of the best. It's very difficult for them to be able to rise to that particular level. The intense training they go through and the skills they have to have. And that's what these men were. David had an army. He had Israel. But these were the special forces of David. Hushai, one of David's friends, described them in 2 Samuel 17 as fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Can you imagine that? They always say that when you are walking through maybe some of our national forests where there might be bears, that oftentimes if you come across the bear and it gets aggressive, it's because it's protecting its cubs. That's kind of the way that Hushai describes these men. You can imagine what they must have been like, how fierce They must have been. Well, today we're going to look at three different passages that are all about David's mighty men. Two of them are found in 2 Samuel 21 and 23. There's another reference in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. Now, these passages include the names of these mighty men. There are a total of 37 names. We're not going to go in great detail through them, but there are a total of 37 names that come up. And again, it's because they didn't all serve at exactly the same time. At any given time, there was about 30 of them that surrounded David. So sometimes we get all their names and we don't get any information on some of them, but there are some others, a handful of them, where we're given additional details into their exploits, their skills, their bravery, their loyalty, and that's where some of the fun is for me as we look at some of these men. I'm going to propose to you that um, as we look at these guys, as we see these mighty men, we're going to see how they served their king what motivated them, we're going to see their courage, and I think that that then gives us an example for ourselves and how we serve our king. There's going to be some parallels there. So the first thing that I want us to see is that David's mighty men were both servants and soldiers. Look at chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, 
And this isn't going to be necessarily a verse by verse by verse study. We're going to do some jumping around because I'm trying to kind of put my arms around a number of passages here. But let's just read the first um, few verses or so, starting in verse 15 of chapter 21. Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushatite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jerim Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Then there was war at Gath again, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants." Now, the men that we saw listed here actually are referred to as the four by scholars. You notice there were four of David's mighty men mentioned here. And he describes the exploits of these four mighty men. Their names, Abishai, Sibachai, Elhana, and Jonathan, just happened to be one of David's brothers, probably a half-brother. Now, you may not have caught it, and I'm just going to highlight this as this section here, but you may not have caught it, but notice that the author of Second Samuel here refers... He bookends, if you will, this section we just read, first and last, by using a term, servants. That's how he identifies these men of David. Look at verse 15. Now, when the Philistines were at war with Israel, David went down with what? With his servants. That's the way it starts. The section ends, verse 22, very similarly. These four giants were born to the giant in Gath, And they fell by the hand of David and what? By the hand of his servants. I don't think that's a mistake. Because these men were both servants and servants first and soldiers, but soldiers second. But they were actually soldiers. In fact, they spent most of their life fighting alongside David in battles against his enemies. Now, the passage here mentions four specific campaigns or wars against the Philistines. We saw that if you look at verse 15 there, it says there was war with the Philistines. Verse 18, it says again, now it came about after this, that there was war with the Philistines. Verse 19 says there was war with the Philistines. um, Verse 20 says the same thing. So these are four different campaigns. And these are just a fraction of the battles that David actually had to fight. Scripturally, there's at least 9 to 12 battles that are recorded with David and his mighty men and Israel fighting their enemies. Now, I say 9 to 12 because we're not really sure because some of them kind of seem maybe to overlap a little bit and you don't know which ones are new ones or which ones are just repeats of old ones, but at least somewhere between 9 and 12 different battles 
are recorded in the scriptures. And again, that's probably just a fraction. That probably doesn't tell the whole truth. What we oftentimes find, and we've been, Dustin and I are finding this in the book of Acts, as you go through the book of Acts and you see the speeches given by Peter and by others, Luke records them, oftentimes those are just summaries. Not all the details are there. Just as the rest of the book of Acts, as you look at it, not everything that happened in the early church is recorded in the book of Acts. And so it's the same thing sometimes with, with this. They highlight certain campaigns or certain battles or certain wars. And so this is probably just a fraction. But the reality of it is that these men fought alongside David and defeated at least nine different nations. You can get a list of that if you, if you want it by simply looking back. I think it's in chapter 9. But again, as we look at this, throughout this whole entire time, David's battles for most of his life, he fought for most of his life. And these men were right along his side. First as his servants, and then as his soldiers. And isn't that really the best kind of soldier? The one who serves? How that plays out a little bit later. The second thing I want us to see is that David's mighty men most often faced enemies that were bigger, stronger, and more powerful than they were. When it came to their enemies, Israel was always outnumbered. You see that whenever they give the numbers, Israel was always outnumbered. Not only that, but the armies that they faced were often equipped with weaponry that was much more advanced. When they came out of Egypt, they basically had farming equipment. And when they went in to take over the land of Canaan, they went in with farming equipment against militaries that were far more advanced. Some of whom had chariots, some of them who had um, had horses, And so we see that actually here. We're going to see a a slight nod to that in a little bit here. But there was another distinct advantage that the Philistines had over David and his mighty men. Did you catch what that was in the text? What was the advantage that was glaring in this passage about the Philistines compared to David's men? These were giants. The Philistines mentioned in this passage were described as being descendants of the giant. Look at verses 16 and 18 again. You see at verse 16 it says, But this man was among the descendants of, and it says, the giant. Some of yours may say giants. You may also see the word Rapha in one or two translations. Verse 18 says the same thing. It says that they were descendants of the giant. Now, the word that's actually used there is just Rapha. And it appears to be a reference to a single individual who was the father of a group called the Raphaim. They're described as giants in the Bible. They're first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verse 5, along with two other groups, the Zuzim and the Emim, who were also described as giants. Now if you remember, when the Israelites first arrived in Canaan, and they sent spies into the land... And the spies came back, and what do they say? We don't want to go in there. We're like grasshoppers to them. We're tiny to them. Now, if these guys were just six feet tall, do you suppose they would have come back and said, we're like grasshoppers? No. They were much bigger. 
than just a traditional tall person. Described as giants. Now, the two most famous giants in the Bible, you guys already know one of them. Some of you kids, who's the one giant you know of? Come on. Goliath, right? And what do we know about Goliath? Well, depending on which manuscript you use, the scriptures describe Goliath as being anywhere from seven and a half to nine and a half feet tall. Now, the reason there's that disparity is because we have two passages and they don't exactly line up. One of the passages seems to suggest that, or one of the manuscripts suggests that he was seven and a half feet, another one that he was nine and a half feet. And sometimes that happens. You know, what we have in the scriptures, our English translation is a copy of 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 a copy copy over the last 4,500 years. And sometimes mistakes were made when they copied. So it's hard to know for sure. But even at seven and a half feet, he was rather tall. Most scholars believe that the second number, nine and a half feet, was probably the more accurate one. And there's, I don't want to get all the details as to why we would assume that. But I'm going to go with Goliath being nine and a half feet tall because of the way that he's described. And even seven and a half feet, that's, that's tall. But when you look at the way that he's described, you look at the equipment he wore, you look at the weaponry he had, it would have been difficult for a man who was only seven and a half feet tall to wield that kind of weaponry and stuff. So we're going to go with the nine and a half feet tall. There's another one mentioned in the scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 3. In fact, why don't you go ahead and turn there. His name was Og, and he was the king of a place called Bashan. So Deuteronomy chapter 3. And there's something we're told rather unique about him. Well, not specifically about him, but about some of his furniture. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11. And it's really, it's a side note. You may notice in your Bible, some Bibles put uh, parentheses around this because it's a little side note. It's a little nugget of truth the author decides to give us. And it says, For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. In other words, he was a giant. Behold, his bedstead, which is a reference to like a couch, it's what they slept on. So basically, his bed was an iron bed. It is in Rabbah, of the sons of Ammon. Now get this. Its length was nine cubits and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. You know what that translates into feet? Basically this thing was 13 feet long and six feet wide. This was either a guy who just loved to be in a really big bed or it was a big bed because he was big. He was a giant, it says. He was a descendant of the Raphaim. He needed a big bed because he was a big guy. Now I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here because there's many that would say there were no giants. We're told in the scriptures that there were. In fact, right before the flood, it refers to a group of individuals referred to as the Nephilim. They're referred to as giants. We're said that they were around after the fall and what that basically means is that they had to come through the line of Noah now, some like to argue that these Nephilim were half-breeds between demons and, and humans. I don't buy into that at all. I don't think that's what the text actually says. It simply says that prior to the flood, that there happened to be giants. Men of renown. My personal conviction, you can disagree with this, my personal conviction is that prior to the flood, they were probably much bigger and taller than we are. In fact, archaeological Fossil evidence shows that we have almost, um, when you look around, you see things like turtles and other animals, land animals. 
Fossil records show that many of those were significantly larger than they are today. In fact, I've got a great book at home with picture after picture after picture of the fossil records of these animals. A turtle, for instance, that was twice as tall as an average man. To armadillos that are six, seven, eight times larger than what they exist today. The fossil record shows that. And now that would make much sense when you have somebody like Adam living for 800 to 900 years. And so, again, this is my personal conviction that pre-flood, many of the humans were probably significantly larger than they are today. Those were the men of renown. By the time we get to the, we get to the flood, that's why you get that little note because the author is basically saying, this happened at a time when giants were in the land, when these men of renown. But what happened after the flood was most likely shortened lifespans. You're now only living 60, 70, 80 years. There's much more death and disease and other things. And so anyway, what basically happens is mankind gets smaller, animals get smaller. And again, the fossil record seems to match up with this. And so it's not unusual to say there were giants at one point. And it's not unusual to think that some of these genetically probably were just that, giants. There were some bigger, and it happened to be the Philistines genetically were bigger, stronger, more powerful than what David and his army was. And so we have these giants. These are the men, the kind of enemies that David's mighty men faced. And in the face of such men... They showed tremendous courage and actually defeated them. We're going to look at some of these. Look at verses 16 and 17. Abishai, one of David's mighty men, defeated a Philistine whose spear, it says, now that spear is referring just likely to the tip of the spear, the metal part. And it says that that part all by itself weighed eight pounds. I don't know if you've ever, any of you lift weights or anything else, but eight pounds, if you imagine that, on the end of a big stick. That's not an easy thing to throw. It's heavy. Eight pounds is a lot for a spear. And part of the reason for that is you want a light spear. The lighter it is, the farther it can go. And this guy had one that was eight pounds in weight. Must have been a rather big man. But the other thing it says is that he also possessed something new. It doesn't tell us what it is. Your translation may say that he was girded with a new sword. Sword is provided there. They're guessing that it might have been a sword. But the word is literally just new, and it probably refers to a new form of weaponry, meaning this is something the Israelites hadn't seen. Oftentimes, Israel's enemies were better equipped. They had been doing war much longer than Israel had. And so there was technology that was available to them, weaponry that they had developed and used. And so it basically, I believe, is a reference here. Since the author doesn't say it was a new sword, it probably wasn't a new sword. It was simply something new, some piece of weaponry that he had that made him a more formidable enemy. But we're told that Abishai defeated him. The next individual, Sibachai, we're simply told in verse 18 that he struck down a giant named Saf. The next one, we're told, Elhanan. It actually says in verse 19 that Elhanan killed Goliath the Gittite. Now, here's another one of those troubling texts because David is the one who actually killed Goliath. So you would have to assume that this is maybe a different Goliath. Um, the problem with that is that 
First Chronicles chapter one verse twenty. I'm sorry. First Chronicles twenty chapter, uh, verse five states that he actually killed a giant named Lammy, the brother of Goliath. Why does this one say he killed Goliath? And First Chronicles, which is a parallel account, says that he killed the brother of Goliath. It's another. I'm going to chalk it up to what's called a copyist error. In other words, as they were copying this, dropped out. In other words, the brother of simply fell out of the text. Once you make a mistake in one manuscript, as that manuscript is copied, that error gets copied over and over. And there are a few instances of that in the scriptures. Very, very few, but it does happen. And so God in his goodness to us has provided both accounts and allows us then to look at them and be able to figure out, well, what what did the original text really say? And generally the rule in understanding manuscripts is that more often than not, things get dropped out of the text than added to the text in some instances. In other instances, they're more prone to add stuff to clarify. And you can sort of tell when an author maybe has added his own personal touch to clarify something. And it sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. But either way, what we know is that he defeated a giant. So it was either Goliath, another Goliath, or the brother of a man named Goliath. Um, We're told that this particular giant carried something, the the shaft of his spear, it says, was like a weaver's beam. Now, what's interesting is weaver's beams weren't generally all that um, large, but most scholars believe that this idea of a weaver's beam suggests that it had a cord or a strap or something wrapped around it so that he could throw it, but then bring it back. Because typically, when you threw your spear, now you don't have your spear. So think of this. If you figure out a way to retain control of your spear by still being able to throw your spear, pulling it back, what can you do with it? You can use it over and over and over. New technology. Simple, but it's new weaponry. This is what made the Philistines one of the most powerful armies on the planet at that time. It was not only their size, but some of their advanced weaponry that they had. And so we have one that had this new whatever it was. We have this other one here who's not only tall, but he's figured out a way to make his weapon so that he can keep retrieving it and using it over and over and over. And yet we're told here, Elhana killed him too. Evidently that advanced weaponry didn't do him much good. Now finally, and this is the, the, the funnest one, he's called David's brother here. Verse 20, Jonathan says that he faced off against a Philistine of great stature. This dude had 24 fingers, or 24 fingers and toes. Six, at least he was symmetrical. Six on each hand, six on each toe, or each on, on each foot. That's got to be a rather strange thing to see. Imagine the size of his hand in order to have six fingers. And yet, it says here, Jonathan defeated him as well. You get down to verse 22. These four, meaning these four giants, were born to the giant in Gath. They were Rephaim. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. These dudes didn't appear to be afraid of anything. Even dudes with six fingers and six toes and advanced weaponry that likely stood and towered well above them. Talk about courage. Let's move on. Third thing I want to see is that David's mighty men risked their lives. They did this out of their devotion. 
to him. These were not men who were scripted or drafted into the military, forced to serve. I'm sure many of you, especially adults, have seen movies, war movies, where they show things like the storming of the beach at Normandy and other things, and they show um, these young boys, 17, 18, 19 years of age, that have been drafted into the military. They're there because they were basically asked by their federal government, drafted into the military, sent over. They were scared to death. But many of them were serving out of their desire to serve their country. Many signed up, but many were, were drafted, brought in. Well, these, these guys volunteer. And they did it out of their devotion and their love for David, and we're going to see that. One of the things that made David such a great leader and a king is that, with just a few exceptions, he was always the first to go into battle. He was always at the front of the line. He was that, that guy you kind of see in the older movies where he's on the horse, he's the general, and he's the first one on the horse out leading everybody else. We see here in verse 15, let's reread that. When the Philistines were at war with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. David was out there battling himself, fighting these giants, wielding his sword, and, and to the point where he became weary. In fact, so weary, let's read on. It says that in the text here, that these men, these soldiers of David, these servants, had to kind of step in, because David had basically fought to the point of exhaustion. Look at verse 15. I think it's verse 15. Now when the Philistines were at war with David, David went down to the servants and was with the servants with him. They fought against the Philistines. David became weary. Then Ishbonab, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with... So we get this description here. But look at what happens in verse 17 then. But Abishai, the son of Uriah, helped him, helped David, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But look at what happens next. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. So so these men are looking at David fighting and they see him fighting to the point of exhaustion and now they're concerned that because he's... What happens when you're exhausted? You're more at risk. And they see this. And so one of them jumps in, helps David defeat this giant. But then they all come together and they say, David, you you can't go out anymore. Now we don't know if they mean just this particular series against the Philistines. Because remember, David fought for much of his life. Or if they meant, never again, David... You'll never go out again. And their concern was, I love this. They don't want to extinguish the lamp of Israel. The light of Israel. And so there's this devotion, this love for this king that we can't afford to lose you, David. And so we're willing to put our lives on the line in place of yours. That's loyalty. That's compassion and love for your commander, for your king. So their devotion to David led them to put David's life above their own. We find another another example of this deep devotion to David in something we've already talked about. A couple of weeks ago I talked about a specific event that happened with David and these mighty men. Look at verse or chapter twenty three. Chapter twenty three, starting in verse thirteen, we read this. Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time in the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistine, Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim, the valley of the giants. 
David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is at the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, and they drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was at the gate, and they took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. These guys risked their life. They went behind enemy lines. And what would have been required at this point is since the Philistines, they were in this valley of the giants, but the main garrison of the Philistines was back in Jerusalem, David's hometown. So these mighty men first had to get through at least one line of Philistines to get to the cave where David's at. And then they hear him say, I'm a little bit thirsty. Now they have to go back through that line, then go to Bethlehem, get through that garrison, go up to the well, and it's not like they can sneak into some back bar room and get some tap water. This is a well, which is generally in the center of the city. I think this one is actually at the gate of the city. But they get there, they get the water. Now they've got to go back through that line, go back through the garrison again in the valley, back to David. All to bring him water from the well in Bethlehem. And they did it. David, in a gracious act here, says, I, I, I can't drink it. These men put their lives in jeopardy to do this for me. And so instead, he pours it out as an offering. And I love the fact that it's referred to as, he refers to the blood and the offering. That's all a typing, a shadowing of Christ. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So the question I have to ask is, what kind of men would do this? Well, we have these verses before this. Verses 8 through 12. And it's interesting because we know that there's three men that do this. Now the text doesn't tell us specifically who the three men were, but the fact that in verses 8 through 12, we get a description of three mighty men, it's likely that was the precursor to this, meaning I'm pretty sure we know who these three men were, and it tells us who they were. Look at verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. I'm not going to read that. I'll try. Joseph, Joseph, Bashebeth. Yeah, that's a crazy one, right? He was chief of the captains. He was called, I like this better, Adino, <laughs> because of 800 slain by him at one time. Okay, so this first guy, right? We'll just call him Josheb. He was a high-ranking official among David's mighty men. He was called chief of the captains. Right? Isn't it interesting? Those are the guys that are always the best leaders. They're willing to do it with, you know, rather than send an underling. You guys go to the well. We can afford to lose you. You're a pawn. No. This guy was chief of the captains. He did it himself, right? So what does it tell us about him? Well, he was famous, it says, for killing 800 men at one time. That probably means in one battle. 800 men. This guy was savage, if you will, from a military perspective. Okay? Now remember, most of the people they battled were giants. This guy was vicious, in a good sense. He was known for killing 800 men 
at one time, and it says, with a spear. That requires, in many respects, fairly close combat. And remember, what happens with the spear? You throw it, you've got to go retrieve it. What about the second one? Another one, Eleazar. Look at verses 9 and 10. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. One of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He rose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. So here we've got this guy, Eleazar. He's one of only three men, it says, who stayed with David on a particular battle after everybody else had retreated. Second Chronicles chapter 11 describes it as a field of barley that was completely surrounded by Philistines. The point at which everybody else had retreated, which oftentimes is a smart military move. If you know you're outnumbered, you know you're going to be defeated, you retreat. You can take up a new position. So everybody else did that. This guy stayed with David in the field and continued to strike down the Philistines and won the battle. That's what he was known for. In fact, it says the rest of the army didn't return until it was time to strip the dead. So he did all the hard work. They come back to pick up the pieces. That's a pretty valiant individual. That's a guy that's got some guts. What about the third guy? That's verse 11. Shammah. Verse 11, let's read that. Now after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And again, the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. I just thought of one more thing about our previous guy, Shammah. You notice the text says that he fought so, so hard that his hand was stuck to his spear, clenched. You can imagine the sheer exhaustion to where you get to the point where you can't even open your hand up anymore. Okay? So this one here is very, very similar. Shama. once again, we find him in a field. This is a field of lentils, it says. Beans, isn't that what they are? Philistines had surrounded it. And once again, it was time to retreat. And so many of the, most of the soldiers had all retreated to take up new positions, but he stuck around in the field, sounds like by himself, to fight these giants. And again, victory. Now there are two other, these are the three that probably went with, or went to to Bethlehem to get the uh, water for David, but there's actually two more honorable mentions of these mighty men that are described that I want to just touch on that are found in chapter 23. The first one is found in verse 18. It's a man named Abishai. Jump down to verse 18. Abishai, the brother of Joab, we already know who he was, the son of Uriah, He was the chief of the 30 men. It says, And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them. And he had a name as well as the three, which meant his reputation was just as good as the three we just described. Which is why he gets an honorable mention here. Now he may not have killed 800 at one time, but he certainly did a pretty decent job because he killed 300 men. Jump down to verse 20. We'll see the last one. Then Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man, Kebzeel, 
who had done mighty deeds, he killed two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion, I love this, in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. Why, like that matters. On a snowy day. Not only that, but he killed an Egyptian who was an impressive man. He was of large stature. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and he had a name as well as the three. So here's a guy. He's got a club. And he's got a spear. How many of you would like to go up against a guy with a spear when all you got is a stick? This guy went, I don't care. He jumps down, grabs the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and sticks him with it. I don't have my own weapon. I'll take yours. I love the description given to these men because these are some mighty deeds, are they not? These things show courage like we rarely see. Going up against giants. Not retreating when it's time to retreat. When all else says, you're better off going back and regrouping. And they're like, I'm staying right here in this field because I'm taking this field. Stealing weapons out of their enemy's hands to use it against them. These are some pretty amazing things. And again, especially when you think that what motivated this, we learn is their devotion, their love, their respect for David as their king. The fourth and final thing I want to see for us today is that even with all their bravery and skill, the victories that these mighty men had are attributed to one. And it's the Lord. Go back to second, or back in you don't have to turn here, but back in Second Samuel chapter eight, verse fourteen, after it lists the number of Israel's enemies that David had defeated, we're told this, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. The Lord helped David wherever he went. We see that here twice in this passage. Look at chapter twenty-three, verse ten. A very simple phrase, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Look at verse 12. Same thing. And the Lord brought about a great victory. So we have these mighty men, courageous beyond belief, valiant warriors, devoted men, servants and soldiers to David, And yet the author makes sure that he tells us that it wasn't their skill, it wasn't even necessarily their bravery, that was all important. God used all of that, but it was ultimately because the Lord helped David wherever he went. And the Lord used these men to bring about the victory. And he's the one that ultimately gets the credit. You know, we see that this is something that David reflected oftentimes in his psalms. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 21. Psalm chapter 21. Just going to read through it. He 
He says, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how great he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet with him in the blessings of good things, and set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and forever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him, and you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven In the time of your anger, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. them. The offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed, for you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their face. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Now he talks about the enemies of the Lord here, and what David is getting at there as a military man, he sees himself in that place, meaning that when they fight against me, when they fight against Israel, they are your enemies. And Lord, you, your salvation, you provide this to your king. And so we see that theme of the Lord delivering victory over and over again in David's psalms. And so the last thing I want us to see here is that he's the one who gets the credit for all of this. So what do we do with all this? How are we going to wrap this up? Well, I've just got a couple of minor, minor points. Um, I think if we take some parallels from it, they might do us well. I think about David's mighty men being described as servants and soldiers. It's pretty clear that we're described as servants in the scriptures. But we're in a battle. Amen. We're also soldiers. Yeah. We're at war. Now, maybe not in the same way that we might think. But this is a war we're in. Jesus prepared his disciples for that. And just like any war, there are martyrs. We can look in the book of Acts to see the first. We can see in church history. We're both servants and soldiers, just like David's men. Like David's mighty men, we face enemies that are often bigger and stronger than us, don't we? We face earthly enemies, there's no question about that. There are those who hate Jesus. There's those who hate what he stands for. There's those who hate his people. Even as we think about what's happening in our own nation right now, the war against conservatives is not just a war against conservatives because most Christians are conservatives. Most conservative ideas are born out of Judeo-Christian beliefs. It's not a war against conservatives. It's a war against the things of God. Now, that does not mean that every conservative principle is a biblical principle. But that's the basis for conservatism. If we think about the way that our nation was founded, if we think about the the laws of our land and the form of government we had, a lot of thought and planning went into that. We were escaping tyranny in Europe and came here and, and whether or not all of our founders were, were believers or not, what we do know is that they were motivated and moved by Judeo-Christian beliefs. And the world hates that now. That's what we're seeing today. You know, just in the last few days as we see, you know, many of you have heard the term um, parlor. You know, basically it's an alternative to Twitter. And it's a, basically a place that says, come here and say what you want to say whether you're a right-wing nut job 
or anybody else, come here and you can say it because we believe you have the right to say it. And, you know, Amazon has basically told them they'll yank their servers tonight by midnight if they don't start banning people, which means that Parler will have no avenue until they can secure new servers or other places to house their website. Um, you know, the president's been banned from, what, eight different platforms now, including Pinterest. When did the president ever use Pinterest to threaten somebody? I mean, if they want to make their argument that he's incited people with Facebook and Twitter, I'll give them that. I don't agree, but I'll, I'll give them that. But PayPal? What's Trump going to do? Threaten him through his credit card? I mean, you know that what's going on right now. There are people that have lost their jobs simply because they attended the rally but weren't even at the state house. That they've now lost their jobs simply because they tried to support a president that others didn't like. Okay? I would like to say that that's not a war on Christians, but folks, considering that much of the conservative base is from Christians, it is. Don't let anybody fool you. Don't let anybody lie to you. The attack against conservatism, things like if we say that homosexual marriage is wrong, or if we say that marriage is restricted to a husband and a wife, or if we say that men shouldn't compete in women's sports, and they shoot back at us, that's a war against God. That's a war against Christianity. That is not just a war against conservatism. And so we face earthly enemies. There's no question about it. And they are bigger and stronger than we are in the flesh. Right? But you see, our most formidable enemy is spiritual. Not earthly. It's not what we see here. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against what? The spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's our real enemy. What's going on in Washington now? <laughs> There's something deeper going on, folks. That's just the covering. So just like David's mighty men, we face enemies that are bigger and stronger than us from an earthly perspective. But you know what? Like David's mighty men... Our devotion to our King Jesus at this time? We ought to be willing to risk our lives just like they do. I had a conversation with one of my daughters the other day about the fear of being persecuted, the fear of facing what might be coming. We're told that Christ will give us what to say when the time happens, not to worry about it until then. David's mighty men didn't worry about their own lives. 
They see David out there fighting, struggling the battle, and one rushes in and takes on the giant for him. They tell David, you go back. We got this. That's us. Christ is asking us to do what they did. Stand in the battle. Stay in the middle of that field, even when it's just us. When it's just us. So like his mighty men, our devotion and our love for our king ought to prepare us for that. And then lastly, like David's mighty men, the Lord will bring about the victory. That's the promise. I'll read one last passage for you, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. You all know the passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. And we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those who He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Amen. Who is against us? Amen. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the only one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, I believe that. Good for you. Good for you. I love this story because we get an amazing picture of these guys that basically served their king with an incredible amount of, of strength and devotion and love in the midst of some overwhelming weaponry and force and strength and size. But did they back down? No, they stuck out in the middle of the field by themselves. They ran behind enemy lines to get David a drink of water. What were they not willing to do for their king? How could we do any less? How could we do any less?